Can people change? I mean, we would all agree that over time, people add a few LBS and uh, wrinkles. If you were here a few weeks ago and you saw Kevin Wilder, and then you saw him this morning, caterpillar has appeared on his upper lip, and uh, we know that people grow different convictions about a host of things over time. But is it possible, is it possible for lasting, deep, permanent change? I've heard that $40 billion is spent every year on dieting, and 19 out of every 20 people lose nothing but their money. Two years after heart surgery to save their lives, 90% of patients are back to their old behaviors. Two out of every three people do not floss. So as you look to the left and to the right, you can see where you fall in that. If it's that difficult to make lasting change about seemingly easy exercise, dieting, dental hygiene, can we really expect lasting permanent change in the more foundational, in the more fundamental, the more serious matters, our core beliefs, our desires, our characters, our lifestyles, our patterns of behavior. You see, the Bible affirms to us just how difficult lasting change is. And the prophet Jeremiah Chapter 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The Bible teaches us that from a man-centered perspective, it is impossible for lasting change. If we are leaning in on the devices and the ingenuities that we have, we will not secure lasting permanent change. I wonder this morning if you have ever despaired of changing. Do you think you're a lost cause? Uh, perhaps you think other people can change, but really not you because of your, your history, because of your temptations, because of the problems, because of your life circumstances. Yet the Bible affirms that from a man-centered perspective, lasting change is impossible. It also lets us know that lasting and deep change is possible from a God-centered perspective. And that God-centered perspective around lasting change is involved in the word and the process and the picture of repentance. Repentance is to change course. It's to turn around. It's to go a new way. Turning from a life that's dominated by sin and self and turning to the one true God. Distrust to trust. Disobedience to obedience. And the command to repent is a difficult command for us to hear because it means that something is wrong. It means that there is a lasting change that is needed. And yet that command ought to fill us with hope. 
we ought to see it as a gracious invitation. That because of the grace of God, change is possible. And it's this note of hope that opens the second chapter of Zephaniah's prophecy. God, through Zephaniah, is unfolding his purposes. Not merely to announce judgment just for the sake of announcing judgment. If you think that God is like that, that God just sort of announces judgment because he doesn't really care, you have a wrong view of God. God is indeed holy, but calls to repentance allow us to see that he's also abundantly and infinitely merciful. And so while this word is hard to hear, this word about judgment, this word about repentance is meant to move us. It's seeing the impending storm coming in of God's judgment. And it's not meant to make us run away from refuge. It's meant to make us run to the one who is our refuge. And so I'd like to pray that that's what would happen as we walk through Zephaniah 2 this morning. So pray with me. Our holy God, we confess our need this morning. We confess that when it comes to the the subject of repentance, it's easy for us to think that this is for someone else. I'm not as bad as I could be. Or somehow just to overlook our need for a merciful Savior. And so I pray that you would allow us to see in looking at your judgments that are coming, you would allow us to see your faithfulness and your mercy. And so help us. I pray that you would use this sermon to help us. And when we want to look away because we're speaking of judgment, would you help us continue to look? Because looking in your judgments, looking at your judgments, looking through your judgments, we find a God who is gracious and merciful. And so show us that, we pray, in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Last week, as we opened our series through Zephaniah, we saw the holiness of God on display as he declared his just judgments that will come on the day of the Lord. And it was this idea that Zephaniah wanted to put before the people of God, that there was coming a day of the Lord that would be both terrifying, because it would be a day of judgment in which it would, uh, no one would be excused. It's a universal judgment. It's an inescapable judgment. It's a dreadful judgment. But Zephaniah also wanted us to see that this day of the Lord would be marked by lavish, merciful grace. It would be a day of judgment, and for some it would be a day of salvation. And how we respond to this news would would lead to what we would experience on that day. And that's what Zephaniah, the Lord has raised Zephaniah up to declare the, the coming judgments and the promises of God so that his people would be called out of their sin and back to God. We heard God say that he would bring this judgment to all of the earth. And perhaps most shockingly, as the people of God, they would have thought that God would surely judge all of the earth, all of the earth out there. What they failed to see was that their idolatry, their complacency, 
their spiritual lukewarmness. There's actually reasons in which God would be faithful to judge and bring his judgments upon even his people. And so if you're here this morning and you've not considered the judgments of God, why in the world he would judge? What's the, the rationale for a God who would do something like that? I would encourage you then just to go back and read Zephaniah chapter 1. Listen to the sermon from last week. This morning we'll continue to learn about God's judgments on the coming day of the Lord. And if chapter 1 helped us consider and understand how God would judge all of the earth, specifically His people, chapter 2 will help us understand how God will judge all of the earth, specifically godless nations. And that's what consumes this chapter. And so we'll highlight three truths about God's mercy and His faithfulness amidst His judgments. And so three truths as we see God being faithful to bring His judgments upon godless nations. First truth, God's mercy is found in repentance of sin. God's mercy is found in the repentance of sin. We see this in verses 1 through 3. This is how we ended the sermon last week. I want, I want us to read it again so that we can uh, so understand the gracious call that comes forth after such an ominous, dreadful chapter of God's judgment to the people of God. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord. All you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And so after declaring the terrifying judgment that will come upon the people of God, that will come upon all of the earth, chapter 2, God calls the people together for corporate repentance. They are a shameless nation. They have abandoned the God whom they belong to. The very distinctive that they had as a people among all peoples was that they belonged to this God, Yahweh. And they have abandoned God. And they have abandoned His ways. You remember from chapter 1, they failed to seek the Lord. They failed to follow the Lord. They desired to be like godless nations. They were superstitious in their religious practices. They denied the presence of God. They denied the power of God. They worshipped false gods. And sadly, that description, marking the people of God then, is eerily similar to many in our day in our open pursuits of that which God has forbidden, in our rejection of that which the Lord has commanded, in our dishonesty, in our mistreatment of others, in our sexual immorality, in our love for money, there is a great need for repentance even in our day. And verse 2 highlights the, the one word in which Zephaniah is trying to get across in relation to the coming judgment and the opportunity to repent. The one word is urgency. Look how many times the word before appears in Zephaniah 2.2. It's urgent because the opportunity to repent is limited. 
the opportunity to turn is fleeting. And Zephaniah calls the nation together to heed the warning. Before the day of the Lord arrives, before it happens, repent. The opportunity to repent will not last forever. It will be lost. And the urgency in the prophet's voice is what echoes and reverberates among the people of Judah. There will be a time when it is too late. And these sobering reminders of the judgments of God ought to be compelling encouragements for us to hold out hope to those around us. There will be a time when it's too late. Failure to repent will lead to experiencing the burning anger and wrath of God against sin. Some 35, 40 years after this prophecy, we know that Babylon will lay siege to Jerusalem, will conquer the city, will burn it to the ground, will destroy the temple of God, and the people of God will be exiled away. And what we learn about these temporary, immediate fulfillments of these prophecies, that all of them are literally, they are the foreshadowing of something so much more severe. The ultimate day of the Lord, in which all will give an account. The reality is that there is an imminent historical judgment that we all face, and that judgment is called death. And in that regard, none of us knows which day will lead us to that ultimate day. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 9, 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die, and after this comes judgment. Judgment is coming. That's what we saw last week. There's There's no escaping. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12 has the picture of the Lord going through the city with a lamp. No one will escape his judgment. And so the urgency presses in on all of the people then, but also on you and I today. He gives the imagery of tossing the grain in the wind, and the good heavier grain would fall to the ground, and then the light chaff would slowly fall and be taken off, blown away by the wind. And Zephaniah says, that's what it's like, your window for repentance it's fleeting. We cannot presume that there will be plenty of time. There's an urgency to the call to repent. Friends, I pray that we would not miss that. And if we, if we by God's grace and mercy are hidden in the refuge that is Christ, may we then be most fervent because we know what it was like to be left out in the storm. May we be most fervent to take this to those around us. And as important as noting the needed urgency of repentance in Zephaniah 2.2, he helps us ensure that we are aware of what repentance is in verse 3. Judah had not been seeking the Lord. 
And what that didn't mean is that they didn't have any form of worship at all. No, they, they did. They, they still came to the temple. They offered their sacrifices. But at the same time, they were pursuing, they were giving themselves over to other worship, to false gods. And they were indulging their sin and their idolatry. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 6, it says, They are like those who have turned back from following the Lord. Friends, repentance is seeking the Lord. We talk about it's changing course. It's going in a different direction. I I, want to be clear. Repentance is not turning from really bad things to some other things. Uh, We can just, we can, we can come up with a list of things that we're not really, we know we shouldn't be doing, we're not doing this well. So let me stop doing that. Let me do something else. A lot of people would say, let's just turn over a new leaf. Let's just begin something new. That's, that's not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance isn't merely turning from something bad to something that's good. Though in biblical repentance that will happen, biblical repentance centers on the Lord. It centers on turning from my sin because of the Lord and turning to the Lord by the grace of the Lord. Everything about repentance is God-centered. How do we know that? How do we know that we can trust the Lord? How do we know that we are to submit to the Lord? How do we do that? We do that through faith in the ways in which He's made Himself known. We do that. We seek to know His Word. And in knowing His Word, we're seeking to evaluate our lives in light of that Word. So His Word says, Acts. No matter how good my reasoning is for doing why, repentance is turning from from doing why and running towards X. It's submission. At the most fundamental level, repentance has to do with relating to God in a particular way. And that particular way is not on the basis of, of how you and I want to relate to God. It's how He says we should relate to Him. He calls the shots. And for Christians, that isn't, that isn't an insecure thing. That shouldn't breed insecurity to know that God calls the shots in my relationship with Him. In fact, it should breed great con- uh, security. Zephaniah says, seek the Lord. He also says, seek humility and seek righteousness. How in the world do sinners seek God in repentance? By humbling themselves before Him. And by submitting ourselves to Him. And so what does that mean to seek the Lord in humility? What's it mean to seek humility, seek the Lord, and seek righteousness? Seeking the Lord in humility means that we humbly agree with what God says about our sin. I mean, just think about what's happened. The people of Judah have, all throughout chapter 1, they have just heard a litany of charges about their sin. And then the call on the other side of that is to seek the Lord. And we're clued in to just one of the fundamental key aspects to what repentance is. The first response of repentance is to agree with God about our sin. To agree with God about our sin's wickedness, to be broken over our sin, to agree with God about the judgment that our sin deserves. If you're you're just curious about what that looks like, I would just encourage you this week, read Psalm 51. 
And hear what David says as a broken man who confesses his sin. He says, against you first and foremost have I sinned. And then, and then David says, whatever judgments you give me, that's what I'm deserving of. He doesn't plead his case. He doesn't kind of beg for a lighter sentencing. No, he says, judgments in your hand are just. I agree with you about my sin. I agree with you about the sin that I deserve. And I'm broken over my sin. Repentance has that shape. And then we humbly turn to God in faith. And the scriptures are clear that everyone who turns to the Lord will be hidden. Jesus says in John chapter 6, 39 and 40, that he will not lose any who come to him, but in fact, all who come to him in faith will have eternal life. He says here in verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Perhaps. Why does he say perhaps? Is it because we're not really sure if we're going to be hidden? Sort of fingers crossed, we'll see if this is going to take effect. No, no, no. no. I, I, I think the point relates to the call to humility. We don't want to be presumptuous about grace as though God owes rebellious sinners his grace. That's not what he owes rebellious sinners. And so we don't come to God presuming on his grace and his mercy. We come to God pleading his promise, pleading his character, knowing that we're not worthy of forgiveness. But we believe that when he commits himself to save, that he will save. We don't come presumptuously looking for his grace, even though we believe that he is gracious to give it to those who seek. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Not presuming. Not thinking I'm deserving. Not this is what God is supposed to do. Throwing ourselves on the gracious, kind mercies of God. If the Lord doesn't freely show his grace to me, we will stand condemned. We can can turn from sin. We can cast ourselves completely on his grace. And then what we find is that once we do that, repentance then is an ongoing reality. Seeking the Lord is us seeking righteousness over and over and over and over again. Doesn't mean that repentance will lead to perfection, but repentance will lead to a consistent pursuit of righteousness. And so, professing Christians, if your walk with the Lord is not marked by a consistent pursuit of righteousness, it would serve you well to consider your walk with the Lord. It's not enough to just merely acknowledge my sin, my behaviors need to be addressed. Confession of our sin is only good as it's married to repentance and obedience. 
And so are you seeking the Lord? Is your seeking of the Lord, is it marked by humility? Is it marked by obedience? Is it marked by a pursuit of righteousness? This is what marks godly, saving repentance. And so if I could give you a command in light of point number one, it would be this. Run to God through repentance. Not walk, not stroll, not get there someday. Run. Leads us to the second truth that we see in this chapter. Truth number two. There is a high cost to unrepentance. There is a high cost to unrepentance. We see this in verses 4 through 15. Really, the rest of the chapter is unpacking this. These verses put before us the judgment that will come to those other nations, those other peoples who do not worship God. And the judgments that will come to them are deserving of them. It's, this, is what they, this is what they have earned God has said this all along, that he will punish people for ungodliness. We saw this in Genesis chapter 6 in the flood. We saw this in Genesis 13 in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see this in Exodus chapter 34. Nations that are in the land that God will give his people that oppose him. We saw this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. As God gives Covenant promises of blessings to his people. He also gives covenant curses. And he sets the stipulations by walking in obedience to him. And by the time you get to Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 4, after hearing this heavy chapter 1, this hard chapter full of judgments, perhaps the people of God were tempted to find relief once you get to verse 4. There were no verses then, but just imagining Zephaniah standing up giving this prophecy. By the time he gets to, for Gaza will be abandoned. I, I just put myself in the crowd after hearing a devastating, uh, the devastating news of, of impending judgment coming upon me. And then this, the focus shifts to other godless nations. I just imagine me in the crowd going, this is the part that I came for. This is what I wanted to hear. What are you going to give all of them? We can always get behind justice for the sins of others. And just look at what he does. Verses 4 through 7. He says, judgment is coming to you, O godless Philistines. The notorious long-term enemies of the people of God if you were to look at where Judah was, kind of centered around Jerusalem, you would see then that the Philistines were to the west. David and Goliath, you remember some three, four hundred years prior to Zephaniah standing up. You remember David and Goliath, and Goliath represented the godless Philistines. And some 300, 400 years prior to that, in the time of Judges, what you would just hear over and over is just classic arch enemy from the very beginning of the people of God. And then, in verses 8 through 11, he moves to their neighbors to the east. 
He turns from the western people of the Philistines to the eastern side of the Jordan where we get to Moab and the Amorites. These people harass God's people literally as they're leaving Egypt. After they, after they left Egypt, they get established in some, some places. People of God say to the people of Moab, can we just traverse through your land? And they say no. And in one of the more intense understandings of God's judgment, the word of the Lord through the prophet Zephaniah to these people, the Moabites, and the Amorites, is that they will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 13. Biblically speaking, the most intense threat you could have gotten on this day. You want to get a little glimpse of judgment on that last day, look at the judgment that came. It's the epitome of divine judgment. And Zephaniah says, Moab and Ammon, you have been arrogant. You have ridiculed God's people. And there's judgment coming for you. And so he looks to the west. The prophecy then comes to those to the east. And then in verse 12, what do we see? The people of Cush. People of Egypt. To the south of Jerusalem. So judgment is coming. They will be slayed by the sword. Judgment to the people of the west, the godless nations west of Jerusalem, godless nations and peoples to the east of Jerusalem, godless nations, peoples to the south of Jerusalem. What's left? Godless peoples to the north of Jerusalem. In verses 13 through 15, God will bring judgment upon the evil Assyrians. Some 150 years before Zephaniah stands up with this prophecy, do you remember Jonah? Sort of the, the hub of Assyria was Nineveh. Do you remember God had sent Jonah to Nineveh? And he goes there with a similar prophecy of destruction, and guess what the people of Nineveh do? They repent. They repent, and then the Lord relents from giving them what they deserve, and yet it appears that successive generations of Nineveh failed to remember that repentance. In Zephaniah's day, they are carefree, and they lived in sufficiency. Look at what it says that Nineveh used to say in verse 15. Nineveh would say, I am, and there is no one besides me. I don't know if that language sounds familiar to you, but that is the language that Yahweh, God himself, used to say. This arrogant people had reached the height of their pride in thinking that they were God. And Zephaniah is calling God's people to repentance by setting before them the reality of God's personal and devastating judgment that's going to come to the godless people around them. 
And he makes clear this reality that small city-states, massive superpowers, ethnically related people, ethnically unrelated people, Zephaniah is declaring in chapter 2 that God will judge all of, their, all of the nations for their failure to seek him. Gods during Zephaniah's day, they were understood to be local and to have sort of a jurisdiction in which peoples in one area would worship one false god and peoples in another area would worship another false god. And yet the people of God, Judah, they belonged to Yahweh. His jurisdiction wasn't local. He insisted on universal claim to being the God above all gods. And in Zephaniah's day, this didn't sit well with this understanding of multiple gods in the worldview. And the reality is that in our day, that truth doesn't sit well. Not so much with polytheism, multiple gods out there, but in our pluralistic worldview, in our pluralistic day. It's not other gods that are offended, it's other human points of view that are often offended. And in our day, the notion is that truth is bigger than any one tradition or one religion. And you can't, you can't claim universal truth over various cultural expressions of religion. No one teaching can, can claim the privileged place to the exclusion of all others. And yet the Bible claims... There is universal lordship of one God and all godless peoples. Maybe even people who think they are really godly, but their problem is their definition of God. All godless peoples will give an account to the one true and living God. It's this God who made the world and everything in it. It's this God who made us for specific purposes and attached to, the, attached to the grace that we see in creation, attached to the purposes that we see in our existence comes an accountability to this God. He has made us and He will someday judge us. And He has the right to do so. And that's not dependent on your opinion or my opinion or another religious philosophy. Many people say, ah, whatever's true for you is true for you. But please do not throw, do not throw your universal religious claim onto other people. It's arrogant. But the spreading of this news is not the product of an American culture. It's not the product of a Brazilian culture, a Chinese culture. Every nation, every people needs to hear this message of the lordship of God, his judgment, and the saving grace that is found in Christ alone. His judgment will be universal because his reign is universal, which leads us then as people to take this offer universally. I appreciate in, even in this chapter, verses 8 and 9 and 10 and 15, all makes clear that what's underneath 
the sinful mocking, the sinful reviling, the sinful persecution and boasting of these nations. It's the deadly sin of pride. God hates pride. In the ESV, Proverbs 3, 34, toward, toward the scorners, he is scornful, but, he, but the humble he gives favor. James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is a wretched sin that seeks to take the place of God, and this sin lies at the root of all other sins, and God hates it. And so, friends, there is a cost to living your life in your pride, not repenting of it, and not turning to the Lord. These nations who had caused fear and dread to the people of God would be a word of reminder of his horrific judgments. God had tied his own honor to the glory and the honor of his people. Do you remember what he said to to Abram when he called him out? He said, I will make a nation out of you. And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. Zephaniah 2 is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. And the problem, though, is not only were the godless peoples around the people of God a problem, but the people of God were not faithful to God. And yet God was merciful in the midst of their unfaithfulness to remain faithful to them. How in the world can God judge these sinners and yet determine to bless his people? It, it, it doesn't make sense. Why in the world does God give mercy to his people? And why in the world do those who do not repent receive his wrath? Ezekiel helps us in answering this question. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the Lord of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you, or gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Why in the world does this people get mercy? It's because of the mercy of God, and that alone. 
God is going to overcome all of their unfaithfulness. And he's going to overcome it by proving himself to be faithful at every turn. God promised to vindicate his name and his people's fate by cleansing them from their sin and making them new. And this this promise comes as as the people of God are getting ready to be carried off into exile. And you think, well, wait a minute. God must have forgotten about his promise if Babylon is going to come in and take the people of Judah away. And you say, no, 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 all of that. Just like, these, just like these prophecies of judgment are preparing us for a future day of judgment, so too these prophecies of salvation are preparing us for the work that Christ himself will do. God the Son... This is exactly what God did through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He takes the sins of his people on himself. He pays the penalty for those sins. But also, because of the cross, the righteousness of Christ is now reckoned to his people. Romans chapter 3, verse 26 makes clear then that because of the work of Christ and absorbing the wrath of God for the sins of others, for the sins of his people, God is to be seen both as the just, the one who punishes sins, as well as the justifier, the one by which and through whom forgiveness of sins is possible. Christian brothers and sisters, this is your hope. This is your hope. In the midst of uncertainty, now I guess we have a little bit of certainty. Maybe we're still waiting on recounting. In the midst of uncertainty in our country, this is the hope for every Christian. The enemies of God thought that the cross and the empty tomb, or the, the, the cross and the tomb were moments of God's greatest weakness. And yet there's not a greater display of God's power and glory and victory than the cross and the empty tomb. Crowned with thorns, hands and feet, nailed to a tree, mocked and insulted, pierced through with a spear, with every blow of the hammer and every insult that was hurled and every bleeding wound that he had, the Lord of glory was triumphing over sin and death. The cross is a display, not just of God's justice. Where we say, okay, he's just going to kind of wipe us off a little bit, improve our lives a little bit. No, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for those of us who were enslaved to our sin. He set us free from every slavery, every kind of slavery to every false God. He redeemed us without subverting the demands of God's justice. And because of his work on the cross and because of the empty tomb, there is now resurrection hope, a hope that doesn't die. Death doesn't take away. Sin doesn't get the last word of hope when it comes to this God and this faith and this kind of life. And so Christian brothers and sisters, just consider at what price you have been redeemed this morning. And now consider the idols that you're tempted to flirt with this week. Friends, don't go there. Don't go back there. Trust in God. He has set you free. 
Instead of feeding the idols with the product of your life and your labor and your love, friends, feast on the Christ who has offered himself for you. And offer your life as a spiritual and living sacrifice to him. And for my non-Christian friends that are here, what idol this morning are you feeding with the best parts of your life? What idol are you enslaved to? Reputation, self-esteem, sex, money, prestige, happiness, power. I pray that just the experience of your life would help you see that no matter how much you give to that idol, it will never be satisfied. And it will never do for you what you hope it will. One pornographic image is never enough. The bank account is never enough. The rush that comes when people think more highly of you than they ought at the expense of other people, one conversation is never enough. Those idols, those false gods will tell you to give yourself to it and it will never deliver on what it promises. They're never satisfied until they consume your very soul. And if you go to your grave having your soul consumed by things that are not God, you will stand worthy and deserving of his judgment. But Jesus Christ, friends, can set you free. Turn to him in repentance and in faith while there is still time. Repent of your sins. Why would you be punished when you can be forgiven? Why would you be destroyed when you can live? Turn from your sins, friends. If you are not a Christian and you have questions about that, we would love to talk with you. We would love to walk with you through a study that explores the Christian faith. We would love to just have conversations. We would love to meet with you. But the command in light of point two is to beware of remaining in your sin. Beware of remaining in your sin. And that leads me to the last truth. We've hit on it all throughout this sermon, so it won't be exhaustive. Number three, there is true hope amidst devastating judgment. There is true hope amidst devastating judgment. What's interesting about Zephaniah chapter 2 is that while the promise of coming judgment is clear and it's repeated over and over, there's also a note of hope scattered throughout. Listen in verse 7. And the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. Listen in verse 9. The end of the verse, the remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. Judgment is coming. There's nowhere to hide. And yet the hope is that God will have a remnant. There will be a few remaining who belong to God. 
they will not be wiped out because of his judgment. And the only way they will not be wiped out because of his judgment, Ezekiel 36 tells us, is because of his grace. That's the only way to avoid the judgment coming on that day. And just the hope, the glimmers of hope that jump off of dark verses because we see a remnant. The astounding thing about these promises for a remnant is that Zephaniah has already made clear that God's people are acting just as wickedly as the nations. They're not deserving of any to be spared. And yet because of great mercy, some will be spared. The surrounding nations have been terribly arrogant. So have the people of God. The surrounding nations have turned and served other gods. So have the people of God. The surrounding nations have ignored the one true God. And so have the people of God. And yet in spite of their unfaithfulness, for his name's sake, God is unrelenting in his mercy and in his grace. There is no basis for this kind of action. In light of all of the other religious options out there in the world, no other God loves like this. In the midst of his judgments, friends, our breath is meant to be taken away because of the staggering mercy and faithfulness of God. And not only do we see hope because of a remnant, verse 11, we see a glimpse of this hope finding its way to Gentiles, to nations, to godless nations and peoples that are deserving of judgment. God says in verse 11 that he will starve their gods and destroy these nations. And yet some, all will do it forced submission. The day is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And yet some, some will do it because they see God to be the greatest treasure. One of the most profound expressions of God's justice is seen in the mission of the church as we take the gospel to the ends of the world to see slaves set free. Jesus was not involved in injustice in any way, but he was involved in bringing glorious freedom to those that were enslaved. And so friends, this morning, are you are you advancing the cause of the hope for the nations? Don't allow your world to be so consumed with you like a broken or a, a messed up alignment that sort of keeps turning inward on self. Are you involved in God's great plan to redeem the world? This church is committed to spend its resources, its time, its money, its people in order to see the nations worship God in their own land as they confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Are you involved in that? You can go on short-term trips. Are you willing to spend vacation days to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? We hope that in the days ahead, this church is aggressive in raising men and women and families up to send them out to see churches planted and the gospel shared among the nations. Are you willing to change your career plans to be involved in seeing nations bow down and worship? All of these plans require prayer on our part. And so do you long 
to spend your time, your personal time, you get me time, are you eager to spend that in prayer that the gospel would make its way to the nations? These works will take money. Are you willing to live more simply here and give more so that we can see the world redeemed for Jesus Christ? Will you give? Will you pray? Will you go? Friends, the impending judgment that is to come, it compels us. Not not a debtor's ethic where we have to sort of now do something because God has been gracious to us and we've got to show him how... No. It compels us as people who have said, I have found the treasure that's most valuable in all of this world. It's wrong for me to sit on it. I want other people to know of the treasure trove. And so this morning, I wonder if you believe it's possible for a person to experience deep and lasting change. The Word of God declares it to be so and offers lasting change to all who will receive it. It will cost you your life as you know it. Maybe even your life on this earth. But what you gain will be far greater than anything you give up. And so have you had this change of heart and life in relation to God? There's no need to look for secret knowledge. It's simple. It's as simple and it's as difficult as turning from your sins and seeking the Lord while there's still time, humbly agreeing with Him about your sin, depending on Him in faith for His mercy in Christ, submitting to His Lordship over your life, and believing the promise of God that because of your faith and trust in Him alone, on that day of the Lord, the oh-so-frightening judgments that will be there, you can know the lavish grace of a hidden, of a life that's hidden in the refuge of him. You will then know change. And that change will lead you to the joy of everlasting life. This is the promise of the Christian faith. This is the good news, the best news you will hear today. Let's pray. Our holy God, As we step away from hearing your word preached, I pray that you would compel us to obedience in how we respond. And so in this moment of silence, would you walk us through what biblical God-honoring repentance looks like? What steps ought we take? I just pray that you would keep us from sitting on this, knowing that there are some changes by grace for your glory that need to be made. I pray you would keep us from being unmoved in this time. And so speak now by your spirit, we pray. Your servants are listening.